Section 7 of Woman and the Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Woman and the Republic by Helen Johnson. Chapter 3, Part 4. Fifteen years ago, suffrage leaders wrote, in view of the wonderful advance of woman, the broader demand for political rights has not commanded the thought its merits and dignity should have secured. If this was true, it had not been for lack of having the demand pressed home upon Congress and upon every state and territorial legislature, save in most of the South, in season and out of season, by every device known to politics, as well as by a steady and impetuous flow of literature and petitions. How have these bodies answered this long appeal? It would take too much time and space, even were it of value, to follow the course of its ups and downs through all these years, but I mention first the fact that no state in New England has ever granted constitutional or even municipal suffrage, although in some of the old thirteen it could have been done by an act of the legislature, a constitutional amendment not being needed. These are some of the figures for the past few years. In Vermont, in 1892, the House passed a municipal suffrage bill, yeas, 149, nays, 83. In 1894, the House defeated a similar bill by a vote of 108 to 106, and refused reconsideration by a vote of 124 to 96. Thus, a favorable majority of 66 in 1892 was changed to an adverse majority of 28 in 1894. In Massachusetts, in 1894, the House passed a municipal suffrage bill by a vote of 119 to 107. In 1895, it defeated a similar bill, the vote standing, yeas 97, nays 137, on the question of carrying the bill to a third reading. In the same year, an act was passed permitting all persons qualified to vote for school committee to express their opinion at the state election by voting yes or no to the question, is it expedient that municipal suffrage be granted to women? Not one woman in four voted in favor of the proposition, although if suffrage has any traditionary power outside of New York State, that power should have been felt in Massachusetts. In Maine, in 1893, the Senate passed a municipal suffrage bill, which was defeated in the House. In 1895, the House passed a municipal suffrage bill, which was defeated in the Senate. In New Hampshire, in 1895, the House refused a third reading to a municipal suffrage bill by a vote of 185 to 108. In Connecticut, in 1895, the Senate rejected a House municipal suffrage bill, while a presidential suffrage bill did not reach a vote, and in Rhode Island a proposition for a suffrage constitutional amendment was referred to the next legislature. All these states had granted school suffrage and could grant municipal suffrage by act of the legislature. In 1893, municipal suffrage bills were defeated in Minnesota, Missouri, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Full suffrage bills were defeated in Arizona and New Mexico. 
A township suffrage bill was defeated in Illinois, a licensed suffrage bill in Connecticut, and a village suffrage bill in New York. In that year also, the Supreme Courts gave decisions adverse to suffrage laws. In 1893, a bill was defeated in the United States Senate, which proposed to give women the municipal vote in the Cherokee outlet. The vote stood 40 to 9. In Washington Territory, the legislature passed a law conferring suffrage on woman in 1883. But this was declared invalid by the courts in 1887 because its nature was not sufficiently defined in its title. It was reenacted in 1888 and again declared invalid by the United States Territorial Court on the ground that the Act of Congress which organized the territorial legislature did not empower it to extend the suffrage to women. In 1889, the people, informing their state constitution, decided against suffrage. In 1894, in the election of November 6th, Kansas defeated a constitutional amendment granting full suffrage by a majority of 34,827. In Iowa, in the same year, the Senate defeated a proposition to submit a suffrage constitutional amendment to the people. In 1895, bills for full suffrage and for municipal suffrage again failed to pass, and the question was submitted to the people in 1896 and resulted in defeat. In 1895, also a township suffrage bill was twice defeated in Illinois. In Indiana, a proposition to strike the word male out of the Constitution was not even reported from the committee to which it was referred. In the same year in Kansas, a bill passed the Senate which proposed to confer upon nine specified women the full suffrage in response to their petition. The Senate also passed a bill conferring upon women the vote for presidential electors, but neither ever reached a vote in the House. In Michigan, the same year, a proposition to submit a constitutional amendment was defeated, and a similar resolution in Missouri was also defeated. Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, Washington, Wisconsin, and South Carolina also defeated propositions to submit the question to the people in 1895. Since January 1897, Nova Scotia, Two territories and ten states have dealt with the suffrage proposal, and all but one of these have rendered adverse decisions. In Nova Scotia, an old bill was reconsidered, and a larger majority was obtained against it. The territories are Arizona and Oklahoma. The states in which it was defeated are Iowa, Nevada, Nebraska, Kansas, Delaware, Maine, Massachusetts, and California. The last two had given it heavy defeats, but a few months previously. Indiana's Supreme Court handed down an adverse decision. The favorable state was Washington, where the legislature voted to submit an amendment to the people next year. Certainly the question cannot be said not to have received the attention that any vital subject might have claimed, and the answers show that, as comprehension of the meaning of democracy has grown, and as liberty of thought and action for men and women has increased, the proposition to cast an unequal burden, 
not upon a disfranchised class, but upon an unfranchised sex, which in every class has its own correlative and equal duties, rights, and privileges, is losing ground. But, it is answered, look at the suffrage triumphs in Utah State and Idaho. Let us look at them more closely. It is my opinion that a few more such triumphs would end in its utter overthrow. Utah introduced suffrage by a simple legislative act. Woman suffrage was abolished in Utah Territory by federal statute because it was found to be sustaining the Mormon Church and the institution of polygamy. The suffragists profess to hold in abhorrence churchly and polygamous rule. Here was an opportunity for them to say to the government, This is not what we meant by suffrage, nor what we desire suffrage to be used for. We approve this real disfranchisement. Did they do anything of the kind? Far from it. In 1876 they passed the following. Resolved that the right of suffrage being vested in the women of Utah by their constitutional and lawful enfranchisement, and by six years of use, we denounce the proposition about to be again presented to Congress for the disfranchisement of the women of that territory as an outrage on the freedom of thousands of legal voters and a gross innovation of vested rights. We demand the abolition of the system of numbering the ballots in order that the women may be thoroughly free to vote as they choose, without supervision or dictation, and that the chair appoint a committee of three persons with power to add to their number to memorialize Congress and otherwise watch over the rights of women of Utah in this regard during the next twelve-month. In 1878, the report of Utah's governor contained the following. All voters must be over 21 years of age and must have resided in the territory six months and in the precinct one month. If males, they must be native-born or naturalized citizens of the United States and taxpayers in the territory. A female voter need not be a taxpayer and if the wife, widow, or daughter of a native or naturalized citizen need not herself be native or naturalized. In 1892, the Utah Commission made to the Secretary of the Interior a report which gave it as their opinion that the sanction of the Church had been withdrawn only temporarily in regard to polygamous practices and would be restored after a political purpose had been served. That same year, a party was formed, calling itself the Liberal Party, and it carried Salt Lake City in the first election in which national party lines were drawn. This was one plank of its platform. Anxious as every liberal is to see every difference adjusted, as anxious as they are to exercise the utmost privileges accorded to the most favored Americans, they remember what first caused clashing here was the presence and control of an unyielding theocracy and an imperium in imperio, and they cannot fail to note that at the last conference of this theocratic organization the old assumptions were all renewed. They therefore deprecated immediate statehood. The bill granting it passed Congress in 1894. The Republican, Democratic, and Populist parties in Utah all favored statehood, 
and at the election following the constitutional convention these parties all inserted planks favoring free coinage of silver sixteen to one demanding the return by government of real estate belonging to the mormon church and favoring the retention of woman's suffrage the women of utah were greatly in evidence during the late presidential election several of them were candidates for office but it is a significant fact that even in utah and even on the republico demo populist ticket the women's vote ran far behind that for the men the salt lake herald for november thirteenth eighteen ninety six records the fact that woman suffrage gave utah to bryan and in another place it says the women on both tickets polled a small number of votes martha cannon who was elected state senator obtained eight thousand one hundred sixty seven votes the men on the same ticket elected to the same office polled respectively nine thousand eight hundred seventy five nine thousand three hundred fifty five nine thousand two hundred forty four nine thousand thirty six votes mrs cannon was on the free silver ticket against her husband who was nominated for the same office on the republican ticket of the other candidates for the senatorships on that ticket four were men and one a woman the men's vote stood six thousand four hundred five six thousand one hundred ninety seven six thousand one hundred twenty nine five thousand nine hundred sixty one the woman's was four thousand six hundred ninety two the only woman put up for state representative ran two thousand votes behind her ticket one man only the ex-dog catcher of the county fell below her the woman's vote was four thousand eight hundred seventy nine the dog catchers four thousand three hundred twenty five i copy from the salt lake herald a few sentences taken from an interview with mrs cannon state senator-elect when asked if she was a strong believer in woman suffrage she answered of course i am it will help women and it will purify politics women are better than men slaves are always better than their masters do you refer to polygamy was asked indeed i do not she answered i believe in polygamy my father and mother were mormons and i am a mormon a plural wife isn't half as much of a slave as a single wife if her husband has four wives she has three weeks of freedom every single month of course it is all at an end now but i think the women of utah think with me that we were better off in polygamy sixty percent of the voters of this state are women we control the state what am i going to do with my children while i am making the laws for the state the same thing i have done with them when i have been practicing medicine they have been left to themselves a good deal some day there will be a law compelling people to have no more than a certain amount of children and the mothers of the land can live as they ought to live this is the character and opinion presented by the highest state official that woman suffrage has as yet given to the united states comment upon it seems unnecessary so far as it would be needed to express the disgust of the majority of american women at such sentiments and such a situation but has any suffrage speaker or meeting denounced them or deprecated the result of the election 
I have heard of none. The National Suffrage Convention, which was held in Iowa in January 1897, had the newly elected populist women as guests of honor, and held a jubilation over the two new suffrage states, Utah and Idaho. Idaho has elected a populist woman or two. The vote in that state in favor of the gold standard and that against woman suffrage tally within 42 votes. The instinctive alliance of the woman suffrage movement with the uncertain and dangerous elements in our political life is well exemplified by the campaign in California in connection with the late presidential election. Mrs. Barclay Hazard, who was almost the sole woman to express publicly the opposition which the majority of women felt to the suffrage idea, has given me the following clear account of the conditions and result. She says, If the advocates of women's suffrage give a really frank and truthful answer to the question, what caused the defeat of the movement in the late campaign in California, they must reply, public sentiment was against it. In all fairness, there is no other reason. Let us consider the conditions under which the campaign was carried on. In the first place, the suffragists were most fortunate in choosing a time when the whole country, as well as the state of California, was torn by a question of such vital importance to continued life and well-being that all other matters were in danger of going by default. Second, they were extremely well organized and had command of a campaign fund of no mean magnitude, which enabled them to keep in the field such able and experienced agitators as Miss Susan B. Anthony and the Reverend Anna Shaw, to say nothing of numerous lesser lights. Third, there was absolutely no organized opposition to the movement. The women who disapproved were as a rule entirely unaccustomed to public speaking and were averse to coming forward in any way. They remonstrated in private but would not express their views openly. Fourth, last but by no means least, our suffrage friends may be said to have had the press of the state with them. The Los Angeles Times, the most influential paper in the southern part of the state, cannot be said to have aided the movement, neither did it actively antagonize it beyond admitting to its columns occasionally letters from the antis. Yet for this small opposition I heard an ardent advocate propose that the suffragists should boycott the paper. Now, was ever a cause fought for under conditions more conducive to success? Everything, to use a current slang phrase, seemed to be going their way. They fully expected to win, and those of us most opposed to their ideas in private sadly conceded their probable victory. The result, when it came, was all the more a surprise and blow to the suffragists, and a welcome reassurance to the friends of stability and conservatism. The figures show us that while the stronghold of populism, the South, went for the measure, Alameda County turned the scale. One must know California to realize what that means. Alameda County contains the city of Oakland, which is admittedly the most respectable and moral city in California. 
It also contains the town of Berkeley, which is the home of the University of California with its large faculty of clever men, most of them from the East. Yes, it was here in the stronghold of morals and intellect that the women's suffrage movement in California met its fate. A question constantly and properly asked is, how does women's suffrage work where it is exercised? So far as I can obtain information, where it has worked at all, it has been detrimental to women and to the state. Of Wyoming there is much testimony to the fact that during the territorial period, 1868-89, to 89, women did little voting and played no appreciable part in political life. Populism and free coinage had begun to play a prominent part in the whole section when Wyoming was admitted to statehood in 1890. At the election that followed its admission, there was a fusion that resulted in the election of a populist governor, and such was the riotous state of feeling that the governor was obliged to enter the state house through a broken window. A year later, this same governor, in his annual message, proclaimed woman suffrage to be a notable success. As a proof, he pointed to the fact that there were no criminals in the state and that the jails were empty. A little research into official documents showed that there might be other reasons, because the criminals and those guilty of small offenses were at that time lodged in other states, and a year later, when the authorities took possession of Laramie Prison, given by the government and brought home their evildoers, they outnumbered in proportion to population those of New Mexico, which certainly should be a fair place for comparison. For a time, women served on juries, and there is testimony to the fact that in many respects they served well, but the practice of calling them was soon suspended and never has been renewed. The only public office of consequence held by them was bestowed by the Republicans but a year or two ago when Miss Reel was made state superintendent of schools. In our late crucial election, Wyoming and its woman's suffrage gave their voices for populism and free coinage. The scale hung in the balance. Why, if woman is a greater political power for good than man, did she not turn it for the principles which the state had held were best? The true test of the working of woman's suffrage lies in a study of the legislation connected with it, and this will be presented under its appropriate heading. The scenes of shameful defiance of law and order in the midst of which Colorado admitted woman to the ballot are of more recent occurrence and are fresh in memory. Populism never has played in Colorado the part that it has in Kansas, but anything for free coinage has been the motto, and in abiding by it the state brought in and afterward turned out Governor Waite of disgraceful memory. Again, last year, there was Republican-Democratic-Populist fusion to beat the gold standard, and much populist rule was again the result. One good authority writes me that women have introduced an element of order and respectability upon Election Day that was never observed before. He says he thinks that, as a whole, the people are very much satisfied with women's suffrage and believe that it has resulted beneficially insofar as it has made politics a little better than they were. Another says that, 
the influence of women in politics did not prevent the last republican caucus of arapaho county from being the most disgraceful in the history of the state the convention though presided over by a woman was completely in the power of the gang and sent to pueblo the most unworthy delegate ever sent this gentleman also says he has heard numbers of intelligent women state that they were sorry the ballot had ever been given to them orderliness at the ordinary elections is expected here without calling upon women to act as moral police at the polls so quiet are they that it has been found practicable to place coffee stands in charge of women near some of the booths when women have requested it in the hope of preventing drunkenness a friend said to me some time ago you know that i have been a suffragist i am most thoroughly converted i have been three months in colorado it is enough to cure anyone a denver correspondent of the chicago record says the women of colorado took no active part in the recent campaign but they did not forget to vote the experiment of having women in the state assembly did not prove satisfactory at the last session and it was quite generally conceded that there would be no more women sent to that body but the populists won in this county and on their ticket were three woman candidates so the coming session will again have three women as members of course the effect of suffrage in new states is not a criterion of its effect elsewhere and whether the effect could be shown to be good or bad the main argument would not be touched the interesting thing to trace is the affiliations of the movement in addition to those that have been mentioned we recall the fact that in our recent political campaign four parties that nominated candidates for president and vice president of the united states had in their conventions women as delegates and members of committees they were the populist the free silver the prohibition and the socialist labor parties the women suffragists of the prohibition party left the rock-ribbed champion that had put a suffrage plank in every platform for years in order to go with free silver and populism of the most extravagant type these parties also had suffrage planks altgeld and debs coxey and tillman were only men but mary ellen Lease furnished to the campaign that strain of exalted fanaticism that at once points out woman's glory and woman's danger the suffrage indictment we have been considering is summed up as follows now in view of this entire disfranchisement of one half of the people of this country their social and religious degradation in view of the unjust laws above mentioned and because women do feel themselves aggrieved oppressed and fraudulently deprived of their most sacred rights we insist that they have immediate admission to all the rights and privileges which belong to them as citizens of the united states dr jacoby in common sense says to this very day the survivors of that group of pioneer women have an abstract way of stating their claim which to modern ears sounds somewhat archaic she is not archaic when she says during the long ages of class rule which are just beginning to cease only one form of sovereignty has been assigned to all men that namely over all women 
Upon these feeble and inferior companions, all men were permitted to avenge the indignities they suffered from so many men to whom they were forced to submit. Mary A. Livermore is not archaic when in the North American Review for February 1896 she says, Her physical weakness, and not alone her mental inferiority, has made her the subject of man, toiling patiently for him, cheerfully sharing with him all his perils and hardships, the unappreciated mother of his children, she has been bought and sold, petted and tortured, according to the whims of her brutal owner, the victim everywhere of pillage, lust, war, and servitude. And this statement includes all races and peoples of the earth from the date of their historic existence. I deny the truthfulness of the archaic accusation, and denounce as an absurdity the bombastic demand. I resent as an unwarranted insult to woman and to man the still more bitter modern representations of woman's condition and woman's rights in this world, and especially in this republic. They are simply false. Archaic or modern, the dictums of the suffrage pioneers have been repeated at their every convention. Overlaid with sentiment, as much of the suffrage idea has become, contradictory as it is in argument and in statement of fact, blended as are its sophisms with the real progress of the time, sincere and well-meaning as are many of its advocates, sex antagonism is the cornerstone of its foundation. The woman's rebellion is a more complex affair than the American Revolution. The latter was the natural result of the earnest and united protest by a large majority of men and women of the American colonies against the tyranny of a monarchical government. The former was a protest by a small band of women and men against what they claimed to be universal tyranny. They attacked law and custom all along the line, and the weapon forever kept in order for the service was the demand for woman's possession of the ballot. Where she does not possess it, and has not asked it, her influence is mightiest. The relation of woman to the Republic is a study worthy the most exalted patriotism. In it is involved the broader question of her relation to man and to the destiny of the race. When told of her son's heroism in crossing the Delaware, Mary Washington said, George will not forget the lessons I have taught him. Through the mother's devoted faith and the son's obedient power, the foundations were laid of a government whose sole reliance must still be on woman's inspiration and man's willing strength. These are evidently God's instruments for our nation's upbuilding. End of section 7 Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago.